0: Welcome to Bookish at This is Anne-Marie Koyster from the History Department. I'm joined by Carrie Peffley in the Philosophy Department. We are going to be talking with Eric Leifblad, who is from the Bible and Theological Studies Department. We will cover a number of topics, including Jonathan Edwards, Philip Spaner, and bonus, Mary Rowlandson's Tale of Captivity. And uh, we appreciate you listening. All right. Well, Eric Leafblad, talk to us a little bit about some of the readings that we're going to be encountering this coming week in humanities. And maybe we'll start with Spainer. Do you like to say Spainer? or do you like to say Spainer? Spanier. You do like to say yeah. Spanier? I don't okay. know if
1: that's right, but I, I, I like to say it.
0: I'm not a theologian. I don't know. Oh. He's German.
1: Yeah, I think it's Spanier. Uh-huh. I think that feels right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um. Um yeah, so Spaner is, uh, in, in many ways, uh, one of the sort of progenitors of the pietist movement. So we're gonna see, in a certain sense, uh, it, pietism is, I don't want to say it's a reaction because it's not, but it, it is reacting against, at least partially, sort of a rise of, of Protestant orthodoxy where the Protestant faith is trying to be embedded in confessional statements, creedal statements, and so Pietism and Spainer in particular is going to not reject those outright, but say that there has to be a sort of felt sense of religion, you mm-hmm. might say. And so we're going to encounter that in Spainer, And then that's actually going to set the ground for uh, turning to Jonathan Edwards quite a bit, who maybe wrongly, but also helpfully, sometimes being wrong can be helpful, uh, In some ways, Edwards is sort of a a neat little synthesis between pietist affectations and Protestant orthodoxy and sort Mm -hmm. of a more like doctrinal sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Because Edwards really loves doctrine, but he also really loves to use doctrine to make you feel things. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, he does.
1: So for for good and bad, it'll (laughs) frighten you and maybe comfort you depending (laughs) on the sort of person you are. Um, So in some ways, what we're turning towards, um, at least in the theological realm, is what will become or what's a really perennial issue maybe around Bethel of like, what do we do with kind of this dichotomy between the head and the heart? And is there a way Mm -hmm. to bring those two things together um, into a a maybe what we might call a, a, I don't know, living intellectualism or something
2: like that? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very nice. You're also going to be talking about the Great Awakening, mm-hmm. and so what? What? What's the deal with American religion? What happens in the Great Awakening?
1: Yeah. So, um, the the Great Awakening, really, maybe we should say like the awakenings, because mm-hmm. there's there's multiple sort of instances, and in a certain sense, it's kind of the birth of revivalism, you might say. Um, so, think Billy Graham before Billy Graham. <laughs> That's maybe not quite right, but it's <laughs> it's fun to be not quite right on a podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the awakenings, they they sort of start in particularly in like the United Kingdom or England and sort of migrate over here and become really um, important in the American context. And in some ways, perhaps it's difficult to say like what American religion is, mm-hmm. um, but perhaps if there is like one thing that's quintessentially American, it's it's maybe this awaken, like mm-hmm. the great awakenings that mm-hmm. might be sort of what America offers the world in terms of religious conviction because in a lot of ways like even as we expand westward as we move forward in history like a lot of preachers go out there to sort of maybe sometimes with duplicitous motives but they go out there with kind of this revivalist kind of big tent preaching mm-hmm. sort of um, way of of embodying and being Christian or religious in uh, in the American context. So conversionism becomes a really mm-hmm. big deal. So the awakenings are really about trying to move you in some capacity, uh, whether through uh, – Warming your heart in sort of a Wesleyan Mm -hmm. model or scaring the literal hell out of you Mm -hmm. Jonathan Edwards Mm -hmm. model Um, The point is to move you in some capacity to make a decision and convert to have a new birth Mm -hmm. Which really is rooted in kind of the Puritans the Puritans were one of the first groups to emphasize new birth um, Though they were still Calvinists. So there's like some weird tensions there but there was this sense of like a new birth that leads to questioning whether or not you're actually mm-hmm. saved so you have to have some sort of doctrine of assurance mm-hmm. so then you have this real moral rigor which mm-hmm. is sort of a confirmation of that process new birth uh, am, I, am i saved i think i'm saved i had an experience mm-hmm. right so i better live really morally rigidly to make sure that's all good mm-hmm. in a sense that's what gives rise i think to some of the awakenings and mm-hmm. the revivalism of this particular
2: moment so now i have a question for you Anne marie coming out of your lecture on monday which Mm -hmm. was on sort of the uh, american foundations and specifically the new england colony you talked about the fact that initially everyone to become a member of the church had to have this experience and then by the time you get to second generation people aren't having this experience anymore uh, Is
0: this linked to the Great
2: Awakenings?
0: Well, I think that is partly. I mean, one of the things that um, we talk about sometimes in American history is that there is a lot of concern about the moving away from the origins of the culture. And so anytime there's a perception that there's a lack of religious zeal, that does end up becoming Mm -hmm. sort of a call to, Mm -hmm. we need to reexamine things. And then, of course, one of the things that I love about Jonathan Edwards is that he roots his discussion so clearly in the historical context, like there were certain things that were going on. There were evidences that we had lacked the kind of zeal that we had once had. Those kids are doing the night walking, Mm -hmm. you know, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, I – and I think, too, what one of the things I was thinking about when Eric was talking is that the other thing that strikes me as very American about even the things you were saying is Americans like the idea of starting over. Yeah, Mm
1: -hmm. right.
0: So that also – if. I mean, it seems like, yes, that might be a facet of American religion, but it's also a facet of American history is um, we have a very tortured kind of relationship to history as much as we sort of feel the pull and the lure of it. And we'll see this in a bunch of other stuff that we read. There's always still this desire just to scrap it all and Mm -hmm. become something totally new. I mean, you see this probably most clearly in like The Great Gatsby, which is sometimes called the quintessential American novel in part because there is this sort of sense of we can never get rid of the past and yet we're always trying to.
1: Yeah, and like, so, I mean, that maybe leads us back to pietism, both like the promise and maybe peril of pietism um, where this all connects or how these things all sort of orbit in the same world is there's a kind of quest for, like the authentic Christian experience, yeah. which is kind of an American mm-hmm. thing right. or a Western thing, maybe that like authenticity becomes a kind of high virtue. I
2: mm-hmm.
1: mean, um, I think piet- pietism is more complicated than that, but oftentimes that's how it's talked about. Even our students, um, you know, like if, if, if you were to maybe poll our students, like what's the most important spiritual virtue you could have? They would be like, well, it has to be authentic or it has mm-hmm. to be genuine. And that, that's kind of built into mm-hmm. this or sort of baked into this whole cake that's going on. Like you have to have this kind of genuine, authentic, sincere experience of, of God. And then if that sincerity starts to wane, well, boy, how do you better get back on that horse of sincerity and, and work your way? Back to this authentic place. Start right. over. Yeah, right? right.
2: Yeah, right. And so, how many times at church camps do we recommit our lives? Every oh.
1: Thursday night, every <laughs> summer. There you all go. All week long. Or all summer long.
0: Eric is speaking from experience. Yeah, you're just talking. No, we about
1: got it. rid of Thursday night altar calls but to the chagrin of all the Southern Baptists that came mm-hmm. to our church. But.
0: Well, and I noticed too when I was rereading Spainer that um, what struck me too about Even in his call for how do we do pietism, he goes and says, well, what is the essence of Christianity? Let's look at the early church where they were getting together in Mm -hmm. small groups, where they were actually talking about what Jesus was teaching. So he really does emphasize the importance, again, of now that Luther has paved the way for us to read the Bible, let's read the Bible Mm -hmm. and let's talk about it in the small group discussion. So, But it's based on this idea of, this is what the early church did, and this is what's authentic yeah, Christianity, right?
1: And I think there's, I think there's great uh, promise in that. I like, I like, I really want to um, suggest that as like I think one of the things that Pietism gets really right. However, as with most things that are really promising, uh, they can become dangerous. Particularly, like I mean. I think one of the ways that something like that can become dangerous, I often use this example in class that like our students will go to Vespers and they're not feeling it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they start to question their faith because they're not having this authentic experience Experience. where they're supposed to be having an authentic Mm -hmm. experience. So on the one hand that authenticity has great promise in the sense that like this, this matters. This is of Mm -hmm. consequence to me. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: On the other hand, um, we have to, I think, ask the question like, what is true authenticity? Mm-hmm. Is it just this self-confirmation self-confir- like bias, or mm-hmm. a certain sense of like, I feel things and that's good? Or is there maybe more going on? Is can doubt be part of an authentic experience? Mm-hmm. And these are the things that I think Pietism uh, is actually really helpful for, because I think Pietism is trying to ask the question, what is authentic Christianity? Mm-hmm. What does it? What does it look like? And what does it feel like? Mm-hmm. And When those two things don't align, how do we think those through? Do we run to a confession or do we reason them out together in the lived expression of our faith? I really like pietism. I think that's a good model of doing theology.
0: Well, and I feel like Edwards will ask the same question. Carrie is nodding. Mm -hmm. Do you want to say more about that? I was just thinking this this reminds me very much of his
2: religious affections Mm -hmm. where he tries to get at, okay, so if we are looking for this experience, well, we have a lot of emotions. And what's the difference between... Emotional manipulation mm-hmm. and a profound religious affection, mm-hmm. um, and so I think that's that's something that Edwards is concerned about, and that is always interesting to read and discuss.
1: Yeah, and I think, um, you know, maybe one of the ways that if we if we chart a trajectory of this, right. Um, one could make the case, I'm sure someone has, one could make the case that without things like pietism and then Edwards and some of the revivalism and the intense focus on sort of a philosophy of affections, like you may not get all the way towards modern psychology. Like there's mm-hmm. a certain sense in which the emotional life begins to really be analyzed and, and utilized as a source mm-hmm. for theology, for thought, mm-hmm. um, in a way that maybe it hadn't been In the past, like emotions were things that we want to tame and keep away. And Edwards wants to tame them too. But he also wants to employ them as like real profound sources of um, meaning
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and uh, even in a certain sense, theology. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: And other people are doing that at the same time. So the week after next, I get to give a lecture on Baroque music. And in Baroque music, there is this idea of this doctrine of affections, the idea that emotion, there is an emotional mood of a piece of music, and it ought to be consistent and coherent. It's the same idea. We need to not be afraid of emotion, but we need to use it
0: carefully and well. Yeah. So it's it's in the air at this point. Well, and because you and I had a chance to talk with somebody, maybe it was even you, Eric, I don't even remember who we talked about Aquinas with. Like You were actually the person that first pointed out to me how important... Um, emotion actually is Mm -hmm. as part of the way Aquinas talks about living the virtuous life that it should give you joy that Mm -hmm. it is that feeling something is actually okay there are problems if you don't feel it but I mean this I mean he's not He's doing a good job of marrying this idea of emotion with living the good life, which is a, a theme that Jonathan Edwards will mm-hmm. return to. Like, absolutely, right. it's okay for you to experience great joy, great ecstasy. Right. But then the way that you tell if someone's had a true conversion is, look at how that person lives his or her life. Mm-hmm. Has that life changed? Is it consistent? Et cetera. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So that's the, the, you'll sometimes hear that like as the, the doctrine of regeneration. Mm-hmm. That there's a regenerate life. There's a, there's a train changed life. We talk about it at Bethel is like the transformed mm-hmm. life. And I think um that is I think one of the I guess I would say one of the gifts to the rest of I guess I'll stick with kind of Western Christendom, but one of the gifts to kind of Western Christendom of American theology is this sense, this focus on like, this should actually show up in our lives in Mm -hmm. different ways. I I participate in a group of international scholars who study uh, youth ministry and sort of do practical theology there. And one of the things that they always are, uh, folks from like Norway and um, Belgium, uh, some of those, they're always astounded at how much uh, the, the work of the American scholars is focused on trying to get young people in particular to like think meaningfully about their faith and they're like well we're just baptized and Christian and like we're trying to just keep them engaged in the institution and so Mm -hmm. there's I think that is one of the things that this sort of historical era and and from it American theology is maybe given to the world a little bit as a sense of like uh, this should live Mm -hmm. right it should live in ways more than just maybe cultural institutions and things like that not that those things aren't important but should also live in the sort of life of the person. Mm-hmm. And maybe institutions should look
0: at that too. So, Yeah, they should. Now, Carrie, I don't know if you're ready for this, but I would kind of like to ask Eric to talk a little bit about the last reading that we've been doing. Yes. Just because oh, we, we haven't had a chance to yeah. talk about that on our podcast. And I I, I know it's not exactly fair because it's sort of looking back a little bit. That's but fine. Students just read uh, Mary Rowlandson's account of her captivity as part of the war that historians sometimes call King Philip's War, from 1675 1676. Um, do you want to say a little bit about that? Sure.
1: Um, I I I think. Uh, well, first of all, I think it's just an incredibly fun and subtle piece of writing. Mm. I I began our seminar by asking about the relationship between the Native Americans um, who Mary Robinson calls Indians and herself and what was her view of yeah. the so-called Indians. And nearly right away, everyone was like, well, she thinks they're savages and that they're just terrible people. I said, yeah, those are kind of the categories that were around at the time. But who's writing this text? And they're like, what? I'm like, well, who wrote the text? Mary, right? Where was she? Well, she was with the Indians. Okay, so who's writing the text? Mary. Where was she? Or she was with the Indians. So she somehow came back from these savages Mm -hmm. to write a text. Mm -hmm. Who brought her back? Right, so what I love about this text is it is so subtly breaking down categories while also using maybe the only categories they had to talk about them. So that for me was really fun. And one of the things as a theologian that we did at the end um, as I said, I think part of what's going on here with Mary Rowlandson is that whenever you have an experience that begins to deconstruct or break down your categories, which I think she had, mm-hmm. yeah, um, we have a tendency to want to run back to our categories. Right. And so I wonder if all this reflection on providence and all this reflection on um, like God was using them to do this, this, and this is just the way that we as humans tend to want to go back to our objective clear categories right. when experience doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if what Mary Rowlandson's story should actually teach us is exa- ex- is exactly the opposite. That when our categories start to break down, we need to reexamine our categories mm-hmm. um, and not our experience. Maybe the experience should drive a recategorization or a change in the way that we do theology. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a really 21st century way of sure. dealing with this. But I actually want to see Mary Rowlandson's text less as like this horrific text and more as a text that's perhaps instructive for us like she actually articulates a narrative that breaks categories
0: mm-hmm.
1: um so i love it I, and I, I think it's incredibly fruitful
0: and was this your first time ever first teaching time this? through it yeah okay ever
1: i mean i think i've read it i think i read it in like high school or sure. something mm-hmm. but um yeah this is my first time going through it with a bunch of students so. you're
0: a little bit more excited than i had anticipated no, I that it. you would be yeah i loved it <laughs> wow curious so how did how did you deal with this text in your in your class? I'm curious. um, so we
2: I am very interested in her as a just as a character yes, um, and I had a I had some conversations with some of my students who were very excited that we were reading so many autobiographies. yes, and so we've been focusing on kind of thinking about stories. Mm-hmm. And so we were trying to figure out, in, you know, in this particular story, who are the characters and what do we learn about them and what are the different ways we can interpret them? Mm-hmm. And initially, my students as well, most of them were just thinking, oh, she's terrible. She's so judgmental. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I, I was actually kind of surprised by how anti-Mary they were yeah. right at first. um, and But then some started saying, yeah, but OK, then there's this story this sort of train of thought and here's what she says here and here's this way in which she's very strong Mm -hmm. and kind of is an amazing heroine and and struggling with Mm -hmm. and, you know, also thinking about well Mary's theology, which comes like comes through so, so strongly. Yeah. Um yeah, so that's that's kind of the way we talked about it and the the different versions of Mary that we see throughout the text.
0: Yeah. Nice. What about you? I almost I think because this is now I don't know how many times I've read this, but I think this time, for some reason, it occurred to me that it was more of like a confession of Mary, Mm -hmm. like Mary saying, I was willing to do these kinds of things in order to survive. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. like, because one of my students was asking, well, you know, well, you know, she did this horrible thing where she takes the horse hoof away Mm -hmm. from this other English captive child who can't eat it. And like, that seems sort of awful. And I said, and yet she wouldn't have had to have mentioned it i mean she's the one writing the story right. why did she, mm-hmm. why does she mention this like yeah. in some ways she is i think still talking about her maybe perceived sin or lack thereof and i think she is she's trying to make sense of something that i think still does not quite make sense right. to her right she often will refer to the strange providence of mm-hmm. god yep it's not the clear cut providence of right. god it's i mean she has to believe it i think somewhere deep in her soul yeah. but she's still trying to put it all together and she doesn't know what to do too with these Native Americans right. that mm-hmm. don't fit the categories yeah. Yeah. One of the most interesting yeah. moments
1: in that regard for me was um, when her child dies yeah mm-hmm. and they bury it mm-hmm. yeah they don't leave it to the beasts right. like and I, I like it's it's really quick and it's almost passing mm-hmm. over right but, yeah. it, but it, it again she included it for a reason yeah. And maybe only because she's like, I wasn't expecting
0: that. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And it it's just that kind of stuff. It's like a text is always more than just the the ideas that are really clear. Yeah. And I, I hope our students in reading it realize like there is so much going on in this mm-hmm. beneath the surface.
2: So mm-hmm. my students were and I find Mary frustrating in this way that. You can see her struggling with these categories, right? The, the, the so-called Indians are savage. They are creatures. They are devilish, right? All of these horrible terms that she uses to talk about them. And then she doesn't know what to do with the many of them who are being kind to mm-hmm. her, who are giving her food, who are helping her out. Offering and, her the peace pipe. Right, she right. It, letting but. her ride on the horse when she's feeling weak, you know, right. all of these various things. But what they noticed is that every, t- like the dominant story when that happens is, God is doing that through them. That's Mm -hmm. the only way she can kind of think about this doesn't fit.
0: This is a a category that doesn't make sense. Except that God is also doing everything through her. Like the only way she is able to survive is because God is doing Mm -hmm. something
1: through her too. Right. Yeah. Right. One, And and I just think like a perceptive thinker, even of that time, would go, so God's using Indians? Mm Mm-hmm right i mean like that's yeah. a big claim too in and of itself right. even even if there is like this meticulous overall providential mm-hmm. thing like that's true mm-hmm. for puritans and yet like sort of the the yes mary's very clearly kind of the hero of the story besides god of course but the indians come off as like essential to god's
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: plan so to speak and like that's a pretty yeah that's a pretty right for that time, provocative that was, claim
0: well and i think too i think part of my favorite part of the text too is at the end where she says i still don't sleep very well mm-hmm. that sense of still being unsettled is right. very much present even toward the, even the very end right. where in fact she's somehow made sense of the story and yet right. not right. quite mm-hmm. right very interesting. It's
1: a great text. Loved it. Good. You didn't think I'd like it, huh?
0: <laughs> I wasn't sure. because yeah. I don't assume anything, or at least mm-hmm. I try not to. Okay, so
2: we we're like reading Rollinson, Spainer, and Edwards. Yep. If there was some other, yeah,
1: Schleiermacher okay. was the answer.
2: You <laughs> uh, knew the question I was going um, to ask. Yeah, so Schleiermacher. That, One of the
1: things that that is a, is a uh, um, I don't know a, a regret for me. That we don't read is any Schleiermacher because um, to get from Edwards to, or maybe this is the way to put it, when we get to Humanities 4, we're gonna read some Moltmann, we're gonna read some Bonhoeffer, we might read some Barth. Like you can't get to these great 20th century uh, theologians without understanding the immense uh, importance of Frederick Schleiermacher. And Schleiermacher is. I think maybe the greatest synthesis between Protestant orthodoxy and pietism. He was a pietist. Mm-hmm. He was raised by a pietist pastor. Um, he moved away from pietism but could never really let go of it because he had these experiences of God's spirit. so he articulates like the feeling of ultimate dependence as that which is God is a very Enlightenment way of talking, mm-hmm. but he never can get rid of the experiential side of Christianity, even as he's rethinking doctrine and Protestant orthodoxy. And that becomes such an immensely important thing for folks like Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Jürgen Moltmann. They are, in a very real sense, the sons and grandsons of Frederick Schleiermacher. And I would argue that... This institution has more Schleiermacherian students than any other theologian. Mm. The, just the immense import of religious experience mm-hmm. as the foundation of one's Christian life is like gospel around here. Mm-hmm. And that is Frederick Schleiermacher.
0: We'll just have to have Eric on several times and just ask him a question each time about Schleiermacher. <laughs> Yes, once a month, Eric. We're Sounds gonna have good. you in
1: Flyermarker podcast. Okay. Let's do it.
0: Uh, <laughs> well, I think it's that time. It is. So, um, Eric, what's on your nightstand, or what's in your CD player? Do you do playlist? that? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> CD player. I don't
1: uh, know. <laughs> well, um, uh, Sturgill Simpson's new album is hands down. Uh, it's great. It's, I mean, just everyone should listen to it. Um, Brother Ali uh recently discovered him uh should not have taken me this long i was gonna
0: say i even knew about yeah yeah (laughs) like
1: i knew of him but i didn't realize Uh, i liked him so i've been listening to him a lot my my son is a big hip-hop guy but he listens to all the like mumble rap crap that's out there (laughs) and so i said well let's listen to some good uh hip-hop so Mm -hmm. brother ali's been on on for us um on my nightstand what am i reading Um, I'm really like in the throes of dissertating right now, so I'm actually not reading a ton besides that, which I've already read to write. So, um, so I've actually been digging back into BART quite a bit lately. Sure. Um, which has been, uh, actually that's been really fun. This is a longer answer than I should give, I guess, but basically, uh, BART was like a like a huge cup of water for me in grad school early on, like in my master's program when I needed a big drink. And so it's been a while since I've engaged him deeply. So coming back to him has been really, really fun and like tear-inducing at moments. So oh. so vocation is real, I guess.
0: Well, yeah. What's on your nightstand, Carrie?
2: So I'm still working through now Michelle Obama's Becoming, which she continues to be just a wonderful storyteller. I'm right. loving it. And then – making my way through the end of Handmaid's Tale, which is depressing. So trying to go back and forth.
0: I um, was just thinking that I hadn't looked up the author of the book that I'm reading, but I remember the title. So Jenna, our veteran TA, will find it for you. But um, the title of the book is Evensong. It's not the one by um, Haruf. It's a female author. um, And it's a story that features an priest an episcopal priest and she's married to another episcopal priest and they have um i think a troubled marriage but i'm not sure i'm still i'm just at the very beginning and something is going to happen so we'll see what goes on there i look forward to an update next week yes all right well you've been listening to bookish at bethel